Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. As always, really interesting episode today. We have Dr. John Oram of NUG, one of the biggest vertically integrated operators in California. Uh, they do everything, cultivation, distribution, extraction, just opened their first retail, planning a bunch more, raising money. It's a really great episode about how to build that truly vertically integrated brand. They also have created most of all their internal systems, software, etc. John is really, really impressive. You're going to love this episode, guys. I've been telling you for the last couple of months about Heffernan Insurance Brokers and how they can help you get the best possible policy for your cannabis business, but I wanted to dive in a little bit deeper and find out how they do this, so I asked Marshall and Tanner to elaborate a little bit here, and they mentioned something really interesting, which is that most cannabis insurance policies, they don't include all of the entities for your company, which can lead to coverage exclusions, and it's actually a relatively easy fix. When they jump in, when they dive deeper, Heffernan usually finds additional ways to improve those terms and rates on operator policies. They even help people set up and implement SOPs for fleet safety, operational safety training, injury triage, and much, much more. You guys got to reach out and have a conversation. We've set up an email specifically for you to do that. It's IC at HeffINS.com. IC at H-E-F-F-I-N-S.com. You got to reach out and have a conversation. They're looking forward to hearing from you. And thanks again again for supporting the show guys all right let's get into the episode it's a great one with john of nug you're gonna love it i loved it i learned a ton you're gonna learn a ton tune in listen up get acquainted John, thanks so much for joining us. I've been really excited to interview you since we met, uh, I guess, a couple months ago where you had us over in Oakland. And uh, first of all, just welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'll get you started on an easy one. Uh, what is NUG? Well, NUG is a uh, vertically integrated cannabis company. And I think that's there's some buzzwords in there that the industry or people are hearing about the industry. You know, what is vertically integrated? Basically, we are a, a fairly large uh, cannabis comp company organized and, and uh, focused in California. And we control the process all the way from seed to sale. Yeah, no, that's uh, very succinct. And we'll get into a little bit more about what vertically integrated means. But maybe let's start with the products. Uh, you produce a lot of different products. I think I saw 50 different SKUs. Uh, can you talk about those categories a little bit? That's right. We have, yeah, approximately 50 different SKUs. Uh, they, uh, the product categories are we have smokable flowers. We have pre-rolled uh, joints that are sold in a, in a nice package of six joints per package. Uh, we have a, a, a very strong line of concentrates. Pro that's probably where we have the most diversity of products because we have different concentrate finishes uh, ranging from crumbles all the way to you know diamonds and uh, the higher end uh, products. And we also have a, a strong line of edibles, uh, which currently in includes uh, chocolates and gummies. Got it. And um, so you were a cultivator, a manufacturer, and then you just uh, opened your first retail store in Sacramento. Congratulations. Kind of tell you. me a little bit about the move there, because it's quite a bit of different process, right? It is. You know, uh, we really felt the need to control our brand. And I think all, you know, any any strong company wants to control their brand. And it's quite difficult to control brand in, in the cannabis sector uh, because, you know, you, we producers don't always have control over the touch points, especially directly to, to consumers. So our way to help fix that and help really solidify the brand was to develop our own retail stores. And yes, we just opened our first one in Sacramento, a very high-end store uh, in the Midtown area of Sacramento, just opened about three weeks ago. Wow. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's super exciting. And I guess it's a good opportunity to talk a little bit about the vertical integration story. I think you guys started with cultivation. Uh, sort of talk about how that all trickles down. And like you're in a number of dispensaries today. I think it's 80 percent or sort of stores statewide. Um, so how many stores are you planning and kind of what's the difference there? Like, why is that such an important next piece for you guys? Uh, well, we currently have uh, five entitled uh, uh, retail locations. 
Uh, when I say entitled, that means you know we, we have our state licenses, we have our local licenses, and we're in some level of construction. So we're not quite open yet on all five of these. Uh, one, the, the first one, like I mentioned, just opened Sacramento about three weeks ago. Um, we, we, we've been working uh, quite hard hard on these stores and and again the the reason that we want to open all of these stores is to control the brand experience and is is five the right number to do that across the state uh, do we need 10 do we need 20 do you only need one uh, we're experimenting on that we think five is the right number to have uh, uh, five flagship stores across the state um, where we control the brand experience. People get to know what Nug is and who we are and the kind of products we produce. And that builds that brand awareness, that brand loyalty. And when those same consumers go to a different retail outlet uh, and they see Nug products on their shelves, they'll feel comfortable buying those Nug products. So that, that's the real strategy is, is having this flagship experience that uh, controls and, and develops brand, the brand experience so that we can improve uh, uh, sell through on, on other on our partner shelves as well. Got it. OK. And then it begs the question, you know, how much of Nug's products are going to be sold in these stores? How much of third party? I mean, total vertical integration is like, OK, we sell our own because the margins are better and all that. How, how much have you thought about sort of that mix going forward? Well, we've thought quite a bit about that. One from a you know perception perspective, and also and, and another from a, a capacity perspective, and and also from just a diversity of product perspective. So, kind of put all those together. Uh, number one, Nug cannot produce enough products to only carry Nug at Nug stores. Um, that that just uh, you know we, we can't reliably produce a diverse enough product offering to just carry Nug products. Uh, secondly, the you know the the market consumers in the market are becoming more sophisticated every day. They know what they want, they know what they're looking for, and we want to make sure that we offer those products. So we carry all the top name brands in California, and we want to make sure. And and there's some regional specificity there too. Uh, some brands sell better in certain regions, so we make sure we carry the brands uh, that uh, do well in cer certain markets, and um, we. Yes, we. I would say we're nug first with our products, but we carry a large uh, variety of high-end products. Got it. Um, so I think one of the other really interesting parts of your business is the sort of third party or contract manufacturing uh, piece of it. And I think this is becoming ever more popular in the cannabis industry. Um, kind of how did that get started? And, you know, why is that an important part of the business today? Uh, you're talking about building your own products and distributing your own products. But well, why the third party stuff? Why is that such a big piece of it? Yeah, the you know the the goal really is to develop our own Nug branded products and uh, use the all the capacity manufacturing capacity that we have uh, to make Nug products. I mean that that would be a, a dream come true. But the reality is uh, the the marketplace in California is such, and also just the demand for diversity of products is such that uh, you know we we find that we have quite a bit of ex excess manufacturing capacity. So rather than just having those uh, machines sit idle and having employees you know sit uh, and twiddling their thumbs uh, we wanted to monetize that so we were we went out and, and courted some of the larger brands in the in the in the space and we settled on a couple very good contracts where we manufacture concentrates uh, at very high-end concentrates at a, at, a, at a high production rate uh, for some of the larger brands in California and you know we we right now we don't disclose who we manufacture for um, some people know, uh, others don't, but I can say that we we have one of the largest contract manufacturing operations in the state of California and where we produce, uh, we currently we're produce, processing over 1,500 pounds of fresh frozen material into live resin concentrates on a daily basis. Wow, that's an incredible volume. Um, and just from walking through your facility, it looks like you have a lot more room to grow. How much of the growth of the business do you expect to be from that contracting manufacturing part? Well, we, I, you know, historically it was very important for NUG in order to execute its vision and build a brand to be vertically integrated. We really had to control 
process uh, from seed to sale. I mean, there's historic reasons why, and a lot of it was because it's hard to to get uh, to to secure input materials for manufacturing processes. So we had to cultivate in order to get those inputs, and then we manufactured our goods and we got took those to market. Um, moving forward, the the state has licensed. Uh, quite a, a lot of cultivation facilities, both indoor and outdoor. And there's really, there's a, a you know, a very rapid commoditization of, of cultivation of, of live plants and flowers. So the need to cultivate, I believe, uh, the need for NUG to cultivate, cultivate into the future is, is, uh, is diminishing. So moving forward, NUG is going to be much more focused on three pillars, and that's manufacturing, uh, both our own products and contract basis. Uh, the other is distribution, and that's both on a wholesale and retail level. And finally, brand. We believe those are the three pillars that will take NUG into the future. So in a world where you're not cultivating as much uh, or as much of the products that you're manufacturing, how do you sort of maintain that quality with uh, with those suppliers? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, it's, uh, it's really about uh, you know your partners. So vet your partners, know your partners, and make sure that uh, that they are like-minded. There's there is a a lot of uh, fresh flower on the market uh, currently, and uh, there's there's a few text groups, uh, you know, that uh, people are are marketing flower uh, bulk flower through text. There's some online apps where are online systems, you know, marketplaces where you can go and secure flower, and I think that's great. And you can always find in you know your your raw material at those those places, but that doesn't speak to your question about quality. To me, it's really about Getting on, getting in your car, driving up to the farms, and meeting these farmers, and we've done that with the contracts we have. We get to know the the, the people and the businesses that we work with. We make sure they're like-minded. Uh, we look at their cultivation operations, make sure that you know they're not using harmful uh, uh, chemicals, and uh, and that they're producing a high-quality product. So it's really just about you know know knowing your farmer, just like when you go to a farmer's market and buy your produce, you know know your farmer, look at the produce, and make sure that it's it's what you expect. And aside from pesticides and sort of professionalism, there, like talk about the the quality of the product that you're looking for. I mean, uh, is Nug specializing in a certain type of cannabis? Or I guess that goes into a little bit of the product discussion again. But you know, what what specifically are you looking for out of that high quality? Uh, flower? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, our, our mission, uh, I'm sorry, our, our future, uh, we will continue to have high quality cultivation facilities of our own. And the the goal there is to be able to produce high quality, you know, A grade, A plus grade, smokable flower. So we will cultivate the strain, we do, and we will continue to cultivate uh, strains that are unique to us or that have a very strong market demand. And we we package those into uh, into prepackaged eighths and into pre rolls. Uh, only so, only the byproducts from our cultivation goes to our manufacturing process. And so, when we go out to the market and we try to source raw material and for specifically for our manufacturing process, we have a, an actually actually an easier job. We're not looking for a perfect bud. We're not looking for something that's been very well manicured, very well cured, and 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 just you know perfectly aesthetically perfect. We're uh, rather we're looking for something that is fresh, and, and specifically we're looking for fresh frozen canvas material. That's material that has been frozen within a half hour to no more than an hour after harvest. Uh, goes into a deep freeze and uh, never comes out of that freeze until it, it enters our manufacturing process. By doing that, we can make sure we're getting obviously the freshest product and we preserve all of the taste and all of this, all of the terpenes, all of the smells and all of the potency. And then we can uh, we can we know how to manufacture very uh, high quality concentrates from those inputs. Wow. Very, very detailed answer there. Love that. Uh, you brought up uh, distribution a little bit. I think this is one of the most challenging parts 
uh, for companies in the industry today. There's these different models that have uh, spun up sort of full, full outsource distribution, just the fulfillment model. You've done all your own self-distribution so far. I guess the first question is, why have you done that? And as you continue to scale, you said that's one of your big pillars there. I mean, why, why is that such the important piece going forward? Yeah, well, I think there's a there's a theme here uh, you might be seeing, which is we like we like to uh, pave our own roads and we like to control our own. Base. So partly that's why we chose to you know, do self-distribution uh, and, and we've continued to do self-distribution because it works for us. Uh, we are able to get products to market at a, uh, a, a reasonable price compared to uh, going with a third party distributor. But also, I think more importantly, it comes back to the third pillar, which is brand and being able to control brand, being able to control the brand experience. And that goes all the way. Uh, let, that's not and, and what we're talking about right here is not just the brand to the consumer, but also the brand relationship with the buyer, with the retail buyers they need to know that uh, that they are getting a high quality nug product they need to know that they're getting a good service they need to know that those products are, are arriving on a van on time with the shipping manifests with all of you know everything that they placed in their order is actually showing up in the van we just really felt that and we still feel that we are better off controlling that process in-house Mm -hmm. And along the same theme of control, you've also built your own distribution software. I know you built your own seed to sale software. That is something that's pretty rare to do in-house. Um, how did you develop that that sort of expertise? And I think that's just pretty amazing that, that you've done all that in-house. In yeah, thank you. Yeah, you know, um, I, I have uh, some experience doing software development in a in a previous previous career, and it's it's also a hobby for me. So uh, I do enjoy doing that, and uh, and I've built a team here in, in at Nug. Uh, we now have five five coders uh, who who work on these systems nonstop. Um, uh, starting with, uh, I'll start with the, your question around distribution. Yes, we we did build our own cloud-based distribution platform. It's it's called Nug nug.market uh, buyers can go on there and see their orders and re and, and re-up their orders uh, they can contact their sales agent and uh, you know ask questions and they can also uh, download their um, um, their compliance documents shipping manifest certificates of analysis and that sort of thing so uh, you know we we chose to build that build that again it's just out of our philosophy about we like to control the process I think in just speaking specifically around distribution, I think we maybe could have used an off-the-shelf system uh, to work for that because, you know, a distribution is just taking widgets off of a off of a shelf, putting them in a box, getting them on, on the road and, and delivering them. So that in its own is not new. But when we think about the other systems we've built, uh, our track and trace system, for example, uh, which tracks every plant in our facility, uh, it then uh, tracks the the concentrates, uh, you know, on, by weight, by by grams, and it also uh, tracks all of our edible products. So so all the way from seed through manufacturing and then into the distribution warehouse. You know, we that was a little more clear that we needed to develop our own. Uh, we went out to the marketplace. We interviewed some of the other track and trace software companies that are out there, and we looked at their systems. All very good systems, but the bottom line was that their systems did not meet our workflow. And so we didn't want to change our workflow. That would have brought some inefficiencies into uh, into our life that we didn't want. So it was better and smarter for us to develop our own system that has certain automations in it so that the system really plays well with our, our daily workflow. Yeah, no, uh, makes a lot of sense. And again, that theme of control. Um, I want to take uh, just a little step back and, and talk about your history a little bit because it's so rich and it's so important to this story, I think. Um, let's let's talk about CW Analytical a little bit. Uh, back in 2008, I think you got started. Is that sort of your first entry point into, um, you know, uh, not cannabis, I know, but sort yep. of your own first venture there? 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm a Ph PhD environmental chemist and engineer. Uh, have uh, for my PhD work and my postgraduate research work, I looked at uh, the movement of agricultural pesticides through fluvial sy systems and and near coastal systems. So I understand chemistry. I understand pesticides. I understand the dynamics and the in the, the the bioavailability of pesticides and the transport of pesticides. Um, so in around, uh, I'd say around 2006, 2007, I started watching the cannabis space. Of course, I'm a connoisseur myself. Uh, and I noticed, you know, there's really no quality control. Um, you know, edibles were wrapped in cellophane and had a little sticker put on them. Um, the, the smokable flowers were likewise just uh, put in a, you know, in a, in, a, in a Ziploc bag with a sticker on them. And that's how you bought the products. Um, I, it just became very evident to me that that we could do better and that the industry should do better. So I'm I partnered with another PhD. His name is Dr. Robert Martin. He's a PhD uh, botanist. I'm sorry, uh, my, uh, my microbiologist. And uh, he and I founded CW Analytical in 2008. And we um, the mission there was to develop processes and uh, scientific processes for ensuring the quality of, of medical cannabis. At this time, everything was medical. So uh, we really wanted to better understand the products and to better ensure their quality. Um, it was a, it was a, a really it was a rough go. Uh, but, you know, now labs are everywhere. And, and the the methods that we developed in our lab back in 2008 are still being used today based widely throughout the industry. Wow, that's uh, pretty fascinating. And and why do you think those haven't changed? Those methods haven't been updated in 10 years. Were, were you just that far uh, forward looking, I suppose? Um, you know, the, well, the methods are based on on solid science and and really uh, solid analytical chemistry and, and analytical uh, biochemistry. Um, those those foundations, those principles don't move all that rapidly. You can buy more sophisticated instruments uh, to do things faster or at a higher uh, precision level, but fundamentally the science is the same. Uh, so we we were yes we were forward looking and also we were just concentrating on on just core uh, scientific principles of of analytical chemistry and analytical uh, biochemistry so yeah those methods are still very very rigorous and, and solid today certainly they've been adapted a little bit they've been optimized but fundamentally it's the same methods wow that must be pretty cool i mean you basically shaped uh, the future of california cannabis there that must uh, that must be a cool feeling yeah, it 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 is. Uh, you know, it's it feels good to to tell that story every now and then too, because that's something that's not published and that's something that you know the the public really doesn't know about. But absolutely, it, it does feel good that we were able to do that, and it it helped it helped set us up for you know the the event the the ventures we're doing now, like like Nug. And how do you make that transition? I mean, uh, you started in 2008 with the lab. When do you come to the decision? Okay, I need to have my own brand. I need to spin this out. Well, we, you know, uh, so 2008, 2009, 2010, I, I, I'm working in the lab, I'm developing methods, I, I have a whole, you know, a whole variety of, prob, prob, uh, of, of products coming through the lab that I have to look at, I got to figure out new ways to, to make things work. Uh, and, and I just started realizing, you know, hey, the, these are, there are some good products here, and there were some bad ones. I just started realizing, you know, I, I can do better. I, I can manufacture better products. So uh, I did spin out a, a, a business, uh, I'd say around 2009, 2010, uh, where we started cultivating, not on a huge scale, but we started cultivating our own plants and then extracting uh, from those plants and, and, and infusing into edible products. And uh, we, yeah, we, we did very well. And again, it was just kind of looking at the landscape, looking at the, at the white space and the landscape and saying, huh, we, there's room to do something here. I have the expertise to do it. Why not take a shot at it? So, so I did, we did. And I guess what were some of the early challenges there? I mean, the cannabis industry is ripe with challenges, but when you look back at starting Nug, um, kind of what what were the, the obstacles that you, that you faced at that time? Well, there there were many, but the uh, yes, 
really number one was was brand the lack of the ability to develop a brand uh so we didn't really come out very strong with nug as a brand we 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 tested around with a few other brands but the the challenge really was that you at that time there really were no brands there were just a few emerging brands in california but it was very tough to build brand and build brand awareness because the experience, the retail experience was all tightly controlled by the dispensaries. Mm -hmm. And the dispensaries at the time were the only licensed cannabis business in the state. Um, and and they were exerting their powers. Uh, and they were, so basically they were buying all of the cannabis in the state at bulk, uh, you know, bulk prices. And, 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 and then they were packaging it themselves, putting their dispensary name brand on the product and selling it that way it was very difficult to to crack that nut and say hey put our brand on here uh let us put our pre-packaged products on your shelves um we we're going to take ads out in your no local magazine we're going to do billboards we're going to do things with this brand and it's gonna it's gonna sell off your shelves uh, quicker if you allow us to do that that was that was a tough conversation to have, and that was it took a long time to actually convince dispensaries to let third-party brands start to emerge on their shelves. Yeah, wow. Uh, I remember those days and the, the, the Ziploc baggies and stickers and, and all of that was a, a very different time for where we are today. Um, and uh, so I guess that brings me to sort of all of this, these great endeavors that you've done. Um, they don't come cheap. They require some capital. Um, and yeah. I guess let's talk a little bit about how the fundraising discussion has evolved. I mean, um, did you raise money? You must have raised some money for CW originally. I imagine that that was a much different world than raising money than it is today. Yes, uh, fundraising has changed quite a bit in the cannabis space. Um, uh, specifically, on your question about CW, we didn't raise money for CW. Actually, okay. that that uh, I actually took a home equity line out uh, back in 2008, and we funded the whole thing from a home home equity line. So, wow. uh, I guess you know I'm I'm proud of that as well. So yeah. CW is debt free. Um, but then, you know, going on and building a brand and building, a, you know, manufacturing and cultivation and manufacturing business that did require investment. And it, it first it required a large, large footprint. You know, if you're going to if you're going to cultivate, you need at scale, you need a, at that time, you needed a minimum of 10,000 feet. Now, I'd say to be competitive, you need a minimum of, you know, 50 or 100,000 square feet. But, mm -hmm. you know, that's a different topic. Um, so, you know, but, but, you know, back in the in the late 2000s to get a, a 10,000 or 15,000 square foot building and, and outfit it with cultivation uh, lights and, and then and then start building manufacturing equipment. Yes, it re required investments, but investors were not interested in equity in your business. They were not interested, uh, you know, in, in the long play. They wanted to get paid uh, on, a, on a daily basis. Yeah. So at that time, it was fairly common, and this is how we did it. It was fairly common to raise your money through a real estate deal. Let's go find a building. Let's find somebody to buy it for, for us, and let's pay them you know, a percentage rent or an, an, some sort of a, an increased rent. So that's how we funded the growth of our company in the early years. Got it. And um, I have a note here that most of that's been paid back, certainly for CW, but then also uh, you've raised a couple times for NUG in the past, sort of in similar non-equity uh, capacities. Um, how do you think that's sort of changed the evolution of the business raising, not for equity, but but in these other sort of capacities? Um, well, you know, it... it, it uh, you know, historically, when you were raising the money, you were you were getting a different type of investor. You were getting uh, some sophisticated real estate investors were coming in, uh, and they can be sharks, uh, and and the money can be expensive. Uh, and then you might get some you know some friends and family money to help you buy this building, and and the risk is mitigated by the fact that they own a building. Uh, but still, you know, it was all just hey, here's here's some money, here's a building, and you know hit the ground run and just go go do your thing and just send me the send me money that send me the you know the rent check. Uh, so that didn't provide much in, in terms of, uh, you know, business support, business development support. There was no such thing at, at that time about, you know, a board of directors or an advisory panel or anything like that. So moving, you know, moving 
to more, you know, now to more contemporary times, the, the investors are coming in are much more sophisticated. They are interested in an equity position. Actually, primarily they're interested in equity positions. They're generally, they want a seat on the board, if not more than one seat, and they want to advise these companies. And I see that all as very positive. You're getting a higher caliber of investor. They most likely have done something like this before where in, in consumer goods. Um, and so you learn from their expertise, you learn from their experience and uh, together uh, you build, uh, you know, and with the input of, the, of your board, you build a better, stronger company. So the 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 funding, the the investing scenario, it, it has loosened up and it's got more sophisticated and, and generally I'd say it's gotten more helpful hmm. over the years. And how does that sort of go along with the theme that you have of control? I mean, opening up uh, to different board seats and outside investors, uh, I guess uh, you you said that it's uh, it's a good thing that they're adding a lot of mm-hmm. advice. Um, do you sort of butt heads in in any areas? Oh sure, sure. But I think you know that's all uh, that's that's all good business and and you know uh, and thought provoking. Everyone's going to butt heads every now and then. But if you can keep a, a strategy alive and keep your in- investors informed and uh, and and really show that you're you're achieving greatness or you're working towards greatness and then everyone's going to be happy. But on, on your question about control um, for, I'll just speak for, you know, for NUG, we, we are only raising in, in minority positions. So uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I still maintain uh, control over the board just by uh, share, just by strictly by number of shares. So, yes, you know, I am the final I'm the president, CEO and final decision maker here, but I'm also smart and I like the input from uh, my smart partners. Um, so, you know, we I'd say I, I rule by consensus uh, until I until I uh, uh, need to rule a little bit more with an iron fist. Got it. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of vertically integrated plays or even uh, MSOs, you're you're raising a relatively small amount of money. And, and you said it was a, a minority position. Um, why have you chosen to do that? Why why are we seeing the the big big round uh, that others have have done? Well, I, I'd say that I don't want to get over my skis. I just don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Um, you know the also there's a, a big bubble out there. You know there's these companies raising hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I don't think they really know what to do with that money and how to spend it. I certainly know if I were to raise a hundred million dollars, I I really wouldn't know how to spend it efficiently. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd get a little bit ahead of myself and, I, myself and I think I'd probably spend unwisely. So I would rather build the company incrementally. Uh, I'd rather take a small money, uh, you know, it's not that small. We're, we're raising yeah. between 10 and $15 million, uh, but that is enough money to, to fund our growth strategy, take us to the next level, and uh, and and build shareholder value and and you know uh, it'll it'll drive revenue it'll increase our our EBITDA and uh, we'll have ultimately if we want to keep growing we'll have another round and then another round and and we'll see where, where that goes and with every round you build a little more value you you have a step up round and and then you you grow the company and you and you do it again so I much prefer the step up uh, approach um, th- then that way then trying to go out and raise a hundred two hundred million dollars today at a crazy uh, valuation and really you got nowhere to go but down Mm-hmm. What a refreshing uh, narrative in the cannabis industry of, sort of yeah, right. go a little slower and, and don't get over your skis there. Um, I, I think it also speaks to sort of the longevity that you've had in this business and the success that you're having today. I mean, uh, you don't need to raise a ton of money because what you're doing is working uh, and, and you're making some money today, which is uh, also right. maybe a novel thing in this industry today. That's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk a little bit about the future here. Like, where do you go from here? We talked about sort of the growth strategy, the rest of the retail. How about products? Uh, there's this amazing, what I think is beverage wave coming of people that new people that don't want to smoke or maybe are into low dose stuff. How do you view uh, the beverages? 
Yeah, yeah, I'd say the future of cannabis products is bright. I, I there's a uh, you know I've seen some very innovative uh, delivery forms, um, and and one you know as you mentioned is, is beverages. I do think beverages are going to be very hot. There are some uh, decent beverages on the market now, and they sell quite well. Um, but it, beverages are difficult. We're dealing with a, an organic organic compound uh, that in cannabinoids and, and, and terpenoids, and uh, it's just hard to infuse that into a water, keep it soluble, keep it shelf stable, and keep it consistent and you know and quality control. A beverage is not very easy, so that's why we're not seeing uh, a, a ton of them on the marketplace. But on the flip side, beverages are great in that they're obviously easy to consume. Everybody knows how to drink a beverage and they can be very tightly regulated. If you, if you get your dosage just right, your infusion process just right, um, you know, the, you could have a, a little scale on the side of the bottle, for example, and you know that for every milliliter, you're going to get so many milligrams of THC or so many milligrams of CBD. It's, so the forget about the infusion process and at the moment because that's the difficulty on the consumption side it's very easy to just pour yourself uh, you know an ounce or two ounces or drink or drink an eight ounce bottle um and it's and it and it can be very enjoyable so i do think the future of bev of, of products uh, canvas products uh, is, is very big for beverages very big and do sort of the new products like beverages, do they eat into the traditional flower business or, you know, how, how do you see that sort of mix going forward? Um, let's see. You know, as every new product product class comes into the marketplace, it's going to cause everybody to elevate their game. So right now there is a lot of focus on beverage. People are trying to make good beverages, trying to brand around beverages. And I'd say uh, within the next, you know, six to 12 months, we're going to see some very big players coming in the beverage market or in the, in the beverage space. And that's going to make everybody elevate their game. So then you're going to see uh, a, a better concentrates. You're going to see better vaporizers. You're going to see better all of these because really the game is just being elevated and being pushed forward. Uh, but specifically on beverages, I, beverages, uh, it, it's also, it's a very good strategic play to have a beverage in your portfolio because if you look at who, uh, which companies are doing the acquiring in the cannabis space currently? It's largely being led by beverage companies. You are seeing uh, some large, you know, alcohol companies, spirit, alcohol and spirit companies, uh, soda companies, uh, sports water companies. They're they're looking at the cannabis space. They know beverages. If they see a good strong uh, cannabis beverage in your portfolio, I think that makes you a good acquisition target. Yeah, absolutely. You led into my next uh, question. Um, what does sort of an exit look like for you guys? I mean, how what, how many years in the future do you um, do you expect that? And and uh, what's a likely acquirer, or or would you prefer to go public at some point? Well, um, I'm having fun right now. <laughs> I have nice. to convince myself nice. I'm having fun. Uh, but no, I, I am having fun right now. So I do want to keep running this business. I do want to keep developing this business. So, but we need to have an exit strategy. And uh, you, you named them. You know, there an, a, a go public IPO route is is, is a possibility, uh, and being acquired is a possibility, or being the acquirer is a possibility. So I think we're, you know, I know we're looking at all of those. Um, for us, they're more in the two to three year time time frame. So we're much more focused on. On, on the now and, and uh, you know, just building a strong brand, building a strong corporate culture and uh, and becoming more efficient and, and in, you know, increasing our, our, our EBITDA as, as high as we can. Uh, I, th I personally think that uh, acquisition um, I'm being a, being acquired rather is our most likely uh, exit strategy. Um, we're building enough capacity. We're building enough brand uh, loyalty, you know, brand brand power, brand equity. Um, and if we can build out our por por different portfolio of, of products and one to include beverages, I think we will be a very good acquisition target. Got it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, one of the other uh, portions that I wanted to touch on, and I know you're really involved with sort of the policy and regulatory side of the industry, um, talk a little bit about the tax issues in California today and like how we got here and, and how you hope that 
they sort of change in the future? What you what you're working towards there? Yeah, you know, and, and actually in California, it's more it's more general than just tax issues. But California is having just a huge uh, regulatory and and tax uh, a challenge around can- cannabis. Uh, you know, just to give you a little bit of foundation and give your your listeners a little bit of you know background here, in 2017 there was over 2,500 uh, retail dispensaries in the state, and producers like myself, we could go to those dispensaries and we can get our our products on the shelves, and you know that's that's 2,500 potential shelf spaces that we can get our products on. Uh, come uh, reg- come the first day of regulation, so January 1st of 2018, that number of of, light, of, of dispensaries dropped overnight to about uh, about 200 250. So overnight we had 10% of the of the shelf space that we used to have, and and at the same time we probably had 10 times as many producers in the state than we used to have. Mm-hmm. So there was overproduction and the pipeline by which products got to market just constricted, you know, overnight. And so the market really, really crashed. It took a, all last year to to start to rebound. Um, companies like myself, we are rebounding. We had a very good fourth quarter of 2018. And now there's about 450, maybe 500 dispensaries in the state. So it's growing. Still, that's much less than what it was uh, in 2017. And so I expect uh, considerable growth of retail establishments in the state over the next uh, year. And that needs to happen for 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 the industry to survive. So so that's number one. That the revenue in general across the state has dis- decreased based on the constriction of the market that I just just mentioned. On the other side of that is taxes. I mean, the taxes are just so burdensome. They're confusing. Number one, and then they're burdensome. The the you know. The consumer, when they walk into a retail dispensary in California and they go and buy something and then they, you know, they walk out and they look at the receipt, they're going to see close to a 40 percent tax on their receipt. Forty percent. And when you include all the excise taxes, when you include all the state taxes, when you include the sales taxes, city taxes, 40 percent. That I mean, that is. That's insane. It's insane. insane. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, and a couple other just sort of regulation issues. There's a new controversy over uh, sort of delivery, um, both in, uh, well, the statewide mandate is that delivery is, is available everywhere, but these local municipalities, they're starting to push back on that. Um, sort of what's your viewpoint there and, and how, does, how does that ultimately affect NUG? Well, you know, I, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of a little bit conflicted on that. Uh, so and actually, you know, it was just this week earlier this week that uh, I believe it's the League of Cities here in California filed suit against the state around this very issue you're talking mm-hmm. about uh, around uh, a statewide delivery. Um, I, I and when I say I'm conflicted because I, I see two, two sides on this one. I do think local municipalities should have say in their licensing and they should have say on, in what goes on within their cities and, and counties. I, I mean, that that just makes sense to me. The local locals know what's happening at the local level. They should have some say. But the voters of California overwhelmingly approve Prop 64 and they overwhelmingly support cannabis. So for a municipality to just outright ban cannabis, I think that's that goes against statewide voters. So this is that double edged sword. Is it it the the local voters or the statewide voters and 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 who wins? Uh, And then, you know, for me, what you know, a core core focus of my business is to normalize the cannabis experience, and that means make it more available and you know in, in, improve and increase access to cannabis and improve and increase the quality of cannabis products. And we can't do that unless more more stores are open, uh, more facilities need to be open. There needs to just be more access at the retail level, and. Uh, so that's that's what I mean, where I'm a little conflicted in the fact that the local local municipalities are 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 often slow and sometimes even ban cannabis. Again, I want them to have a say. But on the flip side, you know, the, the, the voters voted and and businesses need to move forward. It would seem to me that delivery is sort of that happy medium, right? If you don't want to have retail in your city or county, great, fine. Uh, but isn't delivery sort of that halfway uh, compromise? 
That's a good point. I, and yes, I, I agree with that. But, you know, the whether it's factual or not, uh, people are concerned about delivery because, you know, is is there security around it? You know, is is there just is there some guy driving around in a van with ten thousand dollars worth of cannabis in the back of his van? Mm-hmm. Is that, just, you know, a standing roaming in? I'm sorry, roaming inventory just allowed to be driving through cities that could bring up safety concerns. Uh, but then, on you know, the other side of that is the convenience and the discretion of of a delivery uh, uh, service that just pulls up, you know, to your driveway, walks up to your door, and and it, and it's just convenient and it's and it's discreet. So I, I like that. Uh, but the security concern is one, and also the taxability. Uh, but that can be solved by good software and 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 honest businesses. But you know, our, how do how do municipalities know when a delivery happened within their borders, and how do they collect the sales tax on that? So there, you know, there's some challenges there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and California is not doing a great job of collecting those taxes today. So obviously something needs to change there. Um, the, right. the last one that I want to talk about a little bit is the Safe Banking Act, which is still one of the craziest parts of the cannabis industry that most companies have trouble just even getting a bank account and using credit cards and all of these things. Um, first of all, what's uh, put a handicap, I suppose, on whether that'll, that'll pass the Senate? Uh, and then uh, what does that mean in terms of fundraising and, you know, credit facilities and loans and small business loans. How does that impact you guys? Uh, do you think you're sort of, um, no. yeah, how does well, that impact yeah. <laughs> Well, it impacts, uh, you know, everywhere. I, I, I'm not, you know, the, the bills that are going through through uh, Congress, both at the state and federal level, those, those are great. And I'm looking for those fixes and I, and I, and I can't wait for those days uh, because, you know, cannabis business cannot get a, uh, a small business loan from any sort of institutional lender. I'd say loans are basically off limit. You're 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 going to be getting hard money loans or or an equity position, and and that's about it. And the rates are going to be you know uh, uh, higher than one would expect because of the risks that are involved, uh, or at, le- at least the perceived risks that are involved. Uh, so you know that that's one that just increases the com- the complexity and the cost of doing business. But uh, there are there are some saving graces. The you know the the bills you're talking about uh, moving through uh, through the government those will help. But even even without those, there there are banking options in the industry, and it's it's through um, basically what what is happening is there are some financial services uh, groups that are forming, and they are basically the they are operating as the compliance arm for banks. So they sit in between the cannabis business and the bank. They provide all the auditing, they provide all the compliance, they prov- you know, the, basically it's the the know your know your con- know your customer uh, approach and they really they they do. They they really look into your business and they audit every aspect of your business and make sure you have all these financial and inventory controls in place. If you do, they will help you get a bank. And they will facilitate the transfer of cash into that bank, and then what you know, and and then you you get a normal banking services at that point. So uh, you know, it's a workaround, and it's expensive, um, but it's better than cash. Yeah, I think um, options uh, are available to maybe a company of your size like that. But I, I know that many of the other smaller brands uh, are really having trouble with banking, and and there are you know limited credit union availability and, and stuff like that. But clearly there is a need for a change there. Um, and uh, it's going to be exciting when that happens. I mean, just the idea of using a credit card <laughs> to, uh-huh. to buy a lot of products is is very enticing. Um, yeah. I want to just shift gears a little bit here and talk about sort of you uh, as a person and as it connects to the great things that you're doing. Um, kind of how do you like to consume? What's your favorite thing? Do you like flowers? Do you like concentrates? You know, what what are you into? Yeah, well, I, I am a, a daily consumer. Uh, I'm a connoisseur, uh, but I and, and I do dabble in all sorts of different cannabis products. But you know, my core product, yes, is just flowers. I do like just a fresh flower, and I like to uh, you know I like to grind it up and and uh, and use. I like to you know roll a joint or or use a use a pipe. Um, and to me, that's just. That's the most enjoyable. I like the flavor of a fresh flower. I like the experience of smoking it. Um, 
So that's generally my my preferred method of consumption. I have been getting a lot more into edibles lately, especially with the microdosed edibles, which Nug does have. We have a gummy product with only two and a half milligrams uh, per serving, and I like that. I like being able to just take two and a half milligrams or take five milligrams, and and I and I feel good. I feel relaxed, and there's no smell. There's no uh, you know it's very discreet. So. I, I do like the, the, the micro edibles and, and I and I do like to smoke. Concentrates are fun as well, but those, you know, there's a time and a place for those. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they can kind of, you know, they're, they're very potent and, and they can knock you out. How about the other uh, less common cannabinoids? Are you into THCA or THCV or anything like that, sort of more cutting edge? Uh, no, actually not so much. Uh, those it's hard to find products that have, you know, a, a reliable uh, dosage of those particular cannabinoids. Uh, so that's one. So access is limited. Um, but no, to be honest, maybe I, I'm just uh, haven't expanded my horizons enough to get out there to, to try those those products. Got it. Yeah, no, highly recommend some THCA. It's uh, a different kind of experience for, for anybody that hasn't tried it. Um, how do you think your relationship with cannabis has changed? I mean, obviously, you're a longtime consumer, but, you know, going through the various businesses, how how do you sort of view it differently today than, than you once did? Well, I'd have to say I'm 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 happy with the trajectory of, of 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 cannabis, and I'm happy with the progress progress we've made as an industry uh, around normalization. Um, I view cannabis as no different than uh, other intoxicants, uh, alcohol, which you know you can buy alcohol on every other corner and uh, you know in, in neighborhoods these days, uh, and you can go to a bar and enjoy a cocktail, which I love to do. I just really, really feel that cannabis should be treated the same. And that's the way I treat it in my household. I, I have young kids. I'm very open with them. I talk to them about cannabis. They know what I do. They know uh, they've learned respect for the product in the same way that I would uh, ask them to respect, you know, a, a wine or a beer, which is don't do it until you're of, of age. You should know about it. You should be able to talk about it and you should be able to say, no, I'll wait until, you know, I'm, I'm older to try those products. I just don't feel that you get that kind of respect of of a of an intoxicant and unless it's normalized and unless you can talk about it in an open fashion so that's that's what i try i strive to do well said and i think that's uh, about as good a place to wrap up as any uh, before i let you go is there any way our audience can help you are you uh, hiring for anything or anything you want to you want to plug well, I'd say uh, look for uh, our Nug st- retail stores. Uh, we are we do have about uh, we have the one that we just opened in Sacramento in Midtown on 16th Street. Please go check it out. It's developed by an award-winning architect and, and, and interior designer. It's a beautiful store. Uh, you can see pictures out on our Instagram uh, or on Nug.com. And also, you know, try our products. You'll see them on the shelves in California. Next time you see a Nug product, try them. I actually recommend trying the gummies. They're delicious. They're microdosed. I think it's a good entry point into our product uh, line. Uh, give them a whirl. And uh, please send your feedback. Take pictures on Instagram. Let us know how we're doing. Awesome. Well, thanks again, John. It's been a great interview. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure.